President Biden today announced sanctions on more than 500 entities connected to Russia's war machine, but experts question the sanctions' effect. It has had a huge impact on its economy, everyday life for people, but probably not to the extent that many thought it would. It's Friday, February 23rd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the president of El Salvador courts U.S. conservatives at a conference in Maryland. A federal judge in Arizona is taking up a lawsuit Mexico filed against five gun dealers in that state, accusing them of trafficking guns across the border. And a flood of fans, a bigger press box, and a boost to the Phoenix spring training economy. It's the Shohei Otani effect. It's 401. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. As patients face fewer IVF treatment options in Alabama, the Senate Republicans' campaign arm is now urging GOP political candidates to express support for access to fertility treatments. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports on the latest reaction to the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling last week that declared frozen embryos are considered children under state law. A memo from the head of the Senate GOP campaign committee cites overwhelming public support. 85% of respondents in polls back continued access to in vitro fertilization treatments. It urges candidates to publicly oppose any restrictions to IVF or other fertility treatments, adding, quote, framing such opposition as a defense of family values and individual freedom. Democrats argue Republican candidates have established records opposing women's reproductive freedom, and the issue will be a key focus in November's races to determine control of the Senate. Deirdre Welsh, NPR News. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley said she sided with the Alabama court's ruling and considered frozen embryos babies. Haley's getting ready for tomorrow's GOP primary in her home state and faces a tough battle to overcome former President Donald Trump's overwhelming lead in the polls. In Berkeley County, Haley raised the matter of Trump's age. Don't you think we need to have mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75? Look, I'm not being disrespectful when I say that. We all know people over the age of 75 that can run circles around us. Trump's 77, President Biden's 81. President Biden's formally announced sweeping sanctions against Russia over Russia's invasion of Ukraine two years ago tomorrow. The sanctions also target Russian officials who oversaw the incarceration of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died suddenly a week ago. The Washington, D.C. public radio station WAMU is laying off 15 people and closing its local news site, DCist. NPR's David Folkenflik reports the station's leaders say it's part of a renewed focus on audio. WAMU's chief executive, Erica Pulley-Hayes, told staffers that some positions for audio specialists and producers will be added and that the station intends to start a new local radio show and to expand political coverage throughout D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. She says the audience has not been as loyal to the DCist brand as WAMU itself. That said, numerous laid-off staffers said they did reporting in audio and digital platforms alike, including podcasts. Jen White, host of the WAMU-based show 1A, posted on X that she was heartbroken, writing, quote, The steady loss of local coverage is devastating for communities and our democracy. The WAMU cuts follow a year of media layoffs across the country, including in public radio, newspapers, and digital outlets, all at a time when other sectors of the economy are humming along at a healthy clip. That's David Folkenflik. This is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The clock is ticking down for Steward Healthcare to meet a 5 p.m. deadline from Governor Healy to turn over details of its finances. Healy says the information is needed to create plans to stabilize the state's health care system. Steward has said its financial troubles jeopardize the operations of its hospitals here in Massachusetts and that because it's a privately held for-profit company, it should not have to disclose confidential business information to the state. Alabama's court decision on in vitro fertilization has no effect on Massachusetts, but Senator Elizabeth Warren says the decision is part of a troubling trend against women's rights. The Alabama Supreme Court ruled frozen embryos are considered children and are protected under the law. Experts warn the decision could make it more difficult for people with fertility struggles. Warren told CNN the Alabama justices delivered a gut punch to women trying to have families. To have someone declare from that position that these are women who are subject to the wrath of God because they're not behaving in the way that he has decided they should behave. Warren adds she believes IVF and abortion rights will be major issues in the presidential race. Early voting for the upcoming primary in Massachusetts begins tomorrow. It's also the last day to register to vote ahead of the March 5th contest. Primary ballots will include nominees for president and state party positions. People who are unenrolled are allowed to vote in any party's primary. Well, if you owe a fee to Worcester Public Library for a lost or damaged book, you can bring in a photo of your cat or a drawing of a cat next month to have the fee forgiven. It's part of a first-ever month-long celebration at the library called March Meowness. The the library's executive director, Jason Homer, says he's feline good about the new programming. We librarians love our cats, and so we really thought, let's lean in and find a new way to bring people in. So ultimately, March Meowness is really about forgiving those lost item fees. In addition to the fee forgiveness, the library's calendar is littered with other cat-themed activities. There will be a cat-eye makeup tutorial for humans. There will also be a lecture from a certified cat behaviorist and an event to de-stress with cats from the Worcester Animal Rescue League. The rain will move out tonight, then we'll have mostly cloudy skies and temps in the low 30s. Tomorrow will start off cloudy, then skies will clear. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Tomorrow, South Carolina will hold its Republican presidential nominating contest, pitting the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, against the former president, Donald Trump. NPR political correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben is on the campaign trail with Trump in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And she joins us now. Hey, Danielle. Hey there. Hey there. It looks like we have a little bit of delay on the line. You are at a Trump rally as we speak. So let's start with him. What is the closing message that Trump is sending at this point? Sure. Yeah. So uh, you can definitely hear the noise here. There is uh, music in the back, but I'm sure you'll hear the crowd soon. Uh, but yeah, rallies like this around the state, Trump has been on the attack. In other places, we've seen him attack. 
Daniel Kurtzleben, do we still have you in the house? It does not sound like it. All right. I'm going to hand off to my co-host, Mary Lee yep. Let me jump in, and while we get Daniel back on the line, I'll switch us to another story, which is this. President Biden announced today the U.S. is imposing sanctions on more than 500 targets connected to Russia's war machine and the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The move comes just before the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, Western nations have imposed thousands of sanctions on Russia over the past two years to try to hobble its economy and slow its military. NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam explores their impact. The sanctions slapped on Russia by a coalition of Western nations, including the U.S., the rest of the G7, and Australia, were considered unprecedented in terms of speed and scale. They targeted banks, companies, individuals, and froze hundreds of billions of dollars of central bank assets. Despite that, Russia's economy is still standing and its military-industrial complex still churning out weapons for the war in Ukraine. But it doesn't mean that there's not been significant disruption. Justine Walker is head of global sanctions at the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. She says Russia is losing billions of dollars because of the sanctions. You know, it has had a huge impact on how Russia functions, its economy, everyday life for people, but probably not to the extent that, you know, many thought it would. Which is surprising, considering the Western coalition targeted Russia's biggest moneymaker, oil. The EU and the US banned imports of crude, but it tempered that by allowing other nations to continue to buy it for less than $60 a barrel, enough to keep Russian oil flowing but not make profits. Janusz Kluga is an economist and Russia expert at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. He says it would have been a mistake taking Russian oil off the market. The price of oil would get so expensive because Russia is a big player there that it would have an effect on our own economies and would probably create some sort of a global economic crisis. The Biden administration says the Kremlin has lost 40 percent of its oil revenue. It would be more, but Moscow found ways around it, says Kimberly Donovan, director of the Atlantic Council's Economic Statecraft Initiative, which charts the impact of sanctions. Part of that is Russia's ability to circumvent the price cap by using what's called the shadow fleet, using these really old vessels to move their oil through different markets and as well as hide the origin of the oil. Russia has had help in keeping its economy afloat. China and India became Russia's biggest oil customers, albeit paying rock-bottom prices. Other nations helped it evade sanctions and ensure consumer goods and critical technology, such as semiconductors, keep flowing into Russia. Edward Fishman led the State Department's sanction policy after Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. There are countries like China and Turkey and the UAE that are importing these chips from the United States, and then they're selling them onward to Russia. You know, even last year, Russia imported more than a billion dollars worth of advanced chips from the United States and Europe. Those semiconductor chips and other technology and equipment are keeping Russia's military industry alive. Kluga says this leads to a sense that the country is flourishing despite the Western sanctions. Russia's government is spending huge amounts of budgetary funds on the war right now, and this leads to a lot of economic activity and also leads to rising wages in Russia. So it's not surprising then that, for example, Moscow would give you the impression of a, of a booming city right now. 
Edward Fishman, now with Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, says in order for the sanctions to be credible, the U.S. needs to better enforce them. The authority is in place, the threat is in place, but we haven't really seen them use it against different banks and companies. I think we could in the coming weeks and months. The impact of sanctions are rarely immediate. Successes can seem ad hoc, such as a couple dozen Russian oil tankers sitting idle, falling natural gas prices, Russian airplanes grounded for lack of new parts, banks closing accounts of Russian customers. All signs of an ailing economy, says the Atlantic Council's Donovan. I think they're in survival mode and they're able to you know, generate revenue through all these alternative means that they've come up with. But in the long run, the outlook is pretty grim. Though like an end to the war itself, that outlook for Russia may not come quickly. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. A small South Georgia community has become a flashpoint in the battle over animal testing for science, a plan to build a monkey breeding facility that could eventually house up to 30,000 macaque monkeys for medical research is inflaming the small town of Bainbridge. From WFSU, Lynn Hatter reports. There are medicines that likely wouldn't have made their way to market had it not been for the ability to test those drugs on animals like the COVID vaccine. But good luck finding any person doing such research to talk about it on record. This isn't mice that we're talking about. These are highly intelligent, larger mammals. They require a lot of work. That's Colleen McCarthy, a veterinarian who now practices in Tennessee. She specializes in exotic animals like macaque monkeys, the animal that would populate a planned facility in South Georgia. McCarthy is against animal testing, but understands it's needed. If there's ever a way to do without it, I think especially in the U.S., we would pursue that. But unfortunately, I do not think that there are any models or anything to date that could really replace a live subject. The company Safer Human Medicine wants to create a U.S.-grown supply of research monkeys. In December, officials in the town of Bainbridge, just across the Florida line, okayed a deal to give the company tax breaks and 200 acres of land to build a facility. David Jost is the president. The plan is to build up the supply to 30,000 monkeys over 20 years. So we will not grow so fast that we cannot take very good care of the animals that are entrusted to us. So that's important. But in January, the deal fell apart when PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, got involved. Lisa jones Ingle is a researcher with PETA. They are shedding in their urine, their feces, their saliva, their blood, everything from Ebola-like viruses and Campylobacter and Shigella and Yersinia, Salmonella. All of these pathogens have been documented in the monkeys who are landing here in the U.S. The organization has been in Bainbridge protesting against the breeding facility, and some residents have been speaking out against it at council meetings. I have spoken to other realtors who have lost offers and contracts because of this monkey breeding facility. Monkeys are screaming for their lives to be spared, not in a sanctuary, but at a place that causes the pain. You've got the square, but this monkey issue is pushing people away. That was local realtor Lacey Shepard, animal lover Yavina Merritt, and business owner Elise Boyd. They worry the large facility would lower property values and pollute local waterways. The company says its monkeys are clean versus having monkeys imported to the U.S. in often dubious and unethical ways like poaching. Jost, Saver Human Medicine's president, says the company has a lot of support, but not the kind residents are willing to back publicly. 
you know, people are telling me they're getting accosted, you know, on their way out of church or at the grocery store or at the gas station by people who are really very upset about this. I think they're they're certainly not a majority. I would call them a vocal minority. Safer Human Medicine is now suing Bainbridge to stick to the deal. Two other lawsuits are aimed at getting rid of it. Through it all, the company says it plans to stay with Bainbridge, whether the community wants them or not. For NPR News, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. Spring training baseball starts this week in Arizona, and a main attraction is the new star of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Shohei Otani. Matthew Casey of KJZZ reports. Fans in blue line a path between the clubhouse and the main practice field at Camelback Ranch, where the Dodgers play their spring training games. Their love greets members of the Dodgers as they step out into the warm February sun. Newly signed ace pitcher Yoshinobu Yamamoto draws a roar as he sprints by. Yamamoto helped Japan win the World Baseball Classic last year. He joins Shohei Otani, who the Dodgers signed last year for $700 million. The pair are drawing a lot of interest at spring training, says Camelback Ranch president Matt Slatis. We actually had to build out a satellite press box on the exterior of the facility. Right now we've got about 100 media in town every single day. In previous seasons, Otani trained crosstown with the LA Angels, the team he left. That he stayed in Metro Phoenix is a win for Arizona. A local study says the Cactus League added nearly $419 million to the state's gross domestic product last year. I think that when you change teams, it's almost like a rebirth. And we talk about spring training every year as hope springs eternal. Otani only takes batting practice today. Recovering from major elbow surgery, the hitting and pitching prodigy is not expected on the mound this year. Members of the Japanese media watch from the first base side of home plate. Otani swings and disaster threatens. Shutters click as Otani reacts to having fouled a pitch off of his body. The unique energy around him reminds top Cactus League officials of the flock of reporters and fans drawn years ago by Japan's Ichiro Suzuki, also an MVP who retired from the Seattle Mariners in 2019. Otani continues batting practice in a way that simulates at-bats in a game. On his third and final time up, Otani connects. Matthew Casey for NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, a federal judge in Arizona is considering Mexico's lawsuit against five gun shops in that state. The suit accuses the dealers of trafficking guns across the border. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org and Bentley University's nationally ranked MBA and master's programs in technology, finance, and analytics. Become an essential force in today's evolving marketplace. On Wall Street, the Dow inched up 0.2% today. The S&P went up just 0.03%. NASDAQ dipped 0.3%. In local business news, there are plans for another lab space building in Boston's seaport. Beacon Capital has filed plans for a 10-story building on Harbor Street in the Flynn Marine Park. It hasn't announced any tenants for the space. Beacon Capital already has a similar building under construction next door as part of what it's dubbed the South Boston Innovation Campus. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, 
where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. Taking a look at the forecast, after a slight chance of rain to start, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight as temps dip down to the low 30s. In the mid-30s tomorrow as clouds start moving out and some sun breaks through. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Gaza, young social media activists have attracted huge audiences posting images of what it is like to live under war. One of those Instagram personalities spent years building his following with feel-good videos about life in Gaza until his darkest hour came at a moment of celebration in Israel. NPR's Daniel Estrin and our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, bring us his story, and we'll note it contains graphic descriptions of casualties. Gaza's Mr. Congeniality is a guy who goes by the nickname Casanova. He is 30-year-old Ibrahim Hassouna. I have followed him on Instagram for years, and I recognized him at a cafe a few years ago on a reporting trip to Gaza. At the time, he worked with restaurants and businesses promoting their brands. His videos were all smiles and laughter. He told me he wanted his videos to help people overcome the difficulties of life in Gaza. Like this Instagram video, you see him riding in the passenger's seat with his sunroof open, holding a bouquet of flowers, and blasting a song. The next video he posted was him on the couch at home saying, I clean the bathroom and do the dishes. And in the background, his mom goes, liar. <laughs> Those two videos were from October 6th, 2023. The next day, Hamas attacked Israel. Then Israel attacked Gaza. And Casanova's world was forever changed. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, met him last week. Casanova says, I tend to spread positive energy, but when the war started, there was no positive energy. He, his mom and dad, his brother, his sister-in-law, and his two twin nieces fled Gaza City and fled again and again as Israeli warplanes dropped leaflets instructing Palestinians to evacuate farther and farther south for their own safety. He still tried to cheer up his family and his followers on Instagram. So 
He posted this video making a falafel sandwich with his little nieces, Suzanne and Sidra. They didn't have any toys, but they'd play together with a pot lid and an empty jar. In this video, he puts his arm around his mom on a walk to the market in the city of Rafah. He says, we're here for a change of atmosphere. They buy two cauliflowers in the market and smile as they hitch a ride on a horse-drawn cart back to where they're sheltering. But all that was the Instagram version of the day. Off camera? He says it was hard to enjoy the cauliflower meal. The wartime price of two cauliflowers was as much as what an entire meal used to cost. His mom said she didn't feel like going out to the market anymore. Then last weekend, his mom bought four chickens, but he went to sleep at a friend's house, so she promised to wait for him for their first chicken meal in months. Past midnight, there were massive Israeli strikes in Rafah. Our producer documented them. And Casanova rushed back to where his family was sleeping. He says he found the world turned upside down. The home had been hit. The details he gave us are graphic. He went through body bags. One body was without a head, but he recognized his dad's finger. He looked in the second bag and saw one side of his mother's face, the side he would see sleeping near her every night where they were sheltering. Another bag had pieces of his brother. He spent hours collecting the remains of his family. Little Sidra he identified from the earring in one ear. Little Suzanne, he identified by the small purse she always slept with. The Israeli strikes that had killed his family were part of an Israeli special forces operation. Two Israeli hostages, 61 and 70 years old, captured by Hamas on October 7th, were freed. The military says it unleashed massive airstrikes as a diversion to provide the special ops forces with cover. The operation was celebrated in Israel as a rare win, a ray of light with so many other hostages still held in Gaza. Casanova considers the Israeli perspective. He says, you wanted to retrieve two elderly prisoners. It's their right. Aren't they humans? They're humans. And a child is also a human. Just as you want to recognize the rights of the human whose life you want to save, you destroyed the lives of many people who had nothing to do with the whole war. Casanova considers the big picture, the attack from Gaza on Israel October 7th and Israel's response, and says on both sides, there were many things that could have been handled more appropriately. His voice quivers. In 
He says, now I'm by myself. There's no one. I'm speaking to you from a cemetery. I can't even smell my mother's smell, hear my father's voice, check up on my brother, play with the younger ones. A nightmare you can wake up from, but this you can't wake up from. Why should I live my life without a family? Our producer Anas Baba asks him, you used to share the beauty in besieged Gaza. Does the concept of beauty still exist for you? Casanova says, the darkness will be in my heart, not on the outside. I'll continue to spread happiness, goodness, and hope. He says it's something his mother taught him. He has the phrase, my mom, tattooed in Arabic on his wrist. A few days ago, Casanova posted this video of him distributing water to displaced children in Gaza. The caption on Instagram said, honoring the soul of my family. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, with reporting from Anas Baba in Rafah, Gaza. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead in the next half hour, the president of El Salvador gets a rousing welcome at a meeting of U.S. conservatives. Then looking ahead to tomorrow, Nikki Haley will try to upset Donald Trump in the South Carolina Republican presidential primary. Tomorrow night at 7, listen for live special coverage of the results here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around, let's feast. And The Huntington, with John Proctor as the villain, a touching and bitingly funny new comedy. Now through March 10th at the Huntington Calderwood Pavilion, HuntingtonTheater.org. Since I've set up the legacy gift, I feel proud every time I listen to WBUR, because now I feel like I'm a part of it. Kathy Musty is ensuring a strong future for WBUR with her planned gift. It's so valuable, and I really want that money to do something good. I don't think of it as a gift to WBUR. I think of it as a gift to the entire Boston community. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden today announced additional sanctions on Russia over its war in Ukraine and the death of imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. It's, of course, not just the United States. It's dozens of countries around the world that have imposed these sanctions, uh, export controls, and other restrictions on, on Russia. But he says Ukraine still needs additional U.S. military aid, which is currently stalled in Congress. Former President Trump is asking a federal judge in Florida to dismiss all charges against him for withholding and concealing classified and top-secret documents. NPR's Greg Allen reports. 
In the Florida case, Trump faces numerous felony charges, including more than 30 counts of violating the Espionage Act. In four separate motions, his lawyers asked U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon to dismiss the charges on a variety of grounds. In one motion, Trump says he's immune from prosecution for acts committed while president, a claim already rejected by a federal appeals court. He also targets special counsel Jack Smith, saying he was unlawfully appointed. In another motion, he says under the Presidential Records Act, he was allowed to legally retain the documents. And he says the Espionage Act is overly vague and how it applies to the former president. Trump's lawyers are asking Judge Cannon to hold hearings to consider the motions. The Florida case is one among several criminal cases against Trump. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. And Trump and the campaign arm of Senate Republicans are supporting in vitro fertilization days after the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are considered children. This is GOP leaders worry about being out of step with voters on reproductive issues after abortion rights helped Democrats win many competitive races across the country in the 2022 midterm elections. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory, the Dow up 62 to a fresh record. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The wife of the former morgue manager at Harvard Medical School will plead guilty to transporting stolen human body parts sourced from donors. Prosecutors say Denise Lodge mailed body parts her husband Cedric had stolen from Harvard. They say she sent them to buyers across the country and received more than $37,000. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. Attorney Hope LeFaber says Denise Lodge participated in a plan devised by her husband and is pleading guilty to put the case behind her. Still, LeFaber says the case involves some thorny legal questions, like whether human remains are considered goods under federal law. I'm not by any means saying that what the defendants did here was right, but this is more of a moral and ethical dilemma here than a criminal case. There is no federal law against buying or selling human remains. A hearing date for Denise Lodge has not yet been set. Cedric Lodge and the remaining defendants are scheduled to go to trial in August. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Salem will be home to the state's second offshore wind farm terminal. A deal announced by the state today will help create a spot where crews will assemble the turbines to be used in future wind farms. Mayor Dominic Pangalo says the terminal will be built on Salem Harbor. This site has been a site that in the past has been home to a coal and oil-fired power plant, one of the dirtiest in the nation, and a giant coal pile. So to see it uh, transforming into something that's going to serve our clean energy future is very exciting. The site is expected to open by 2026. The state's first offshore wind farm terminal was built in New Bedford nearly a decade ago. Parking permits in Medford will work a little differently over the coming year. The city announced plans for a pilot program in areas around its Ball Square and Medford Tufts T-stations. Street-by-street residential permit parking will be replaced by district-wide permit parking. The city claims the change will make Medford's parking model more equitable and accessible. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. 
There's a slight chance of rain tonight, then it'll be mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the low 30s. Tomorrow we'll have gradual clearing with some sun breaking through as the day goes on and highs in the mid-30s. Upper 30s on Sunday with lots of sunshine. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing, with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at YPTC.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Mexico is suing five gun dealers in Arizona, saying they knowingly sell firearms to traffickers who then arm drug cartels. And there has long been evidence that guns found at crime scenes in Mexico largely come from the U.S. Now a federal judge in Tucson is deciding whether to allow the Mexican government's lawsuit to go forward. Danielle Kamara is following the case for Arizona Public Media. For Arizona Public Media, hey there. Hi. Nice Hi. To so I'm thinking I, there is a U.S. government report that says a fifth, about a fifth of all guns found at Mexican crime scenes come from Arizona alone. Does that explain why Mexico is suing gun dealers specifically in Arizona? So, yeah, in arguments yesterday, co-counsel for Mexico said that these five gun dealers facilitate aid and abet trafficking, and that they're part of a small percentage of dealers that sell virtually all crime guns recovered in Mexico. But the defense says that this isn't true. They argue that they have immunity from prosecution under a law that protects firearm dealers from being held liable for crimes committed with their products. And they also say that their firearms are a small portion of weapons trafficked into Mexico. But Mexico says that these dealers are responsible for more than 2,000 guns trafficked into the country every year. And they cite dozens of cases where these gun dealers sold firearms to people who were later prosecuted for trafficking. Okay, so the immunity you just mentioned, this is gun dealers claiming that U.S. law protects them from liability for crimes committed with their products. But am I right in remembering that an appeals court just rejected that reasoning in another lawsuit? Yes, that's correct. So in 2021, Mexico filed a $10 billion lawsuit against American gun makers for making dangerous products that wind up in the hands of cartels. And then a lower court initially said that Mexico couldn't sue, but just last month, the federal appeals court in Boston ruled that the suit could go forward. So the judge in Arizona is now deciding the same question, whether a law protecting gun dealers means that Mexico can't sue. And on top of that, the judge is also considering whether Mexico has standing to claim it was injured by the store's actions, whether the harms could be traced to the gun stores, and whether a ruling in Mexico's favor could even address the injuries. I mean, how big would of a deal would it be if it happens, if Mexico is able to sue and succeeds in winning lawsuits against American gun manufacturers and gun dealers? Yeah, so it's certainly important internationally, but gun safety groups in the U.S. have been backing these kinds of lawsuits, too, as a way to try to diminish the power and influence of America's gun industry. A U.S.-based group, Global Action on Gun Violence, has been helping Mexico with its lawsuit against the American gun manufacturers. And we should note that the U.S. Supreme Court allowed some families of Sandy Hook shooting victims to sue the manufacturers of the guns used there. 
and Remington Arms settled that suit for $73 million. Hmm. Big picture, what is the government of Mexico trying to accomplish with this lawsuit? Yeah, so the country hopes to force these companies to change their practices. That could include appointing a monitor to oversee sales, funding studies and advertising campaigns to mm -hmm. prevent firearms trafficking, and awarding damages to the government of Mexico. The fact is that the gun violence in Mexico has steadily increased, uh -huh. and Mexico is hoping that a ruling in their favor would alleviate some of the violence. That is Arizona Public Media's Danielle Kamara. Thanks. Thanks so much. The war in Gaza could be quickly approaching a new phase, one that starts with a short-term pause in the fighting. Negotiators from the U.S., Israel, Egypt, and Qatar are expected to meet in Paris to discuss the outlines of a deal. Joining us now is NPR international correspondent Aya Batraoui in Dubai. Hey, Aya. Hi, Elsa. So what do we know as of now about this meeting in Paris where some of this deal is getting discussed? Well, Hamas leaders in exile were in Cairo this week, and they appear to have dropped or at least set aside for now some of their previous demands. And now NPR has learned from Egyptian officials close to the talks that Hamas is now saying they would agree to a six-week truce. And during that truce, they would release 50 civilian hostages, so people taken in the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th, in exchange for around 3,000 Palestinians held in Israeli jails. Now, there could also during this period of time be more aid into Gaza, humanitarian aid across the north and south. But crucially, Elsa, what this would mean would be a sustained pause to a war that has dragged on now for close to five months. And there is a real race here to try and seal a deal before the start of Ramadan around March 10th. This is a very sensitive holy month for Muslims. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. and Egypt, they're also trying to stave off an Israeli offensive into Rafah, which is the southernmost tip of Gaza where more than a million Palestinians have been pushed and they have nowhere left to flee. Huh. Well, this exchange that's being proposed, I mean, it sounds quite similar to the truce that took place in late November, right, where we saw hostages from Israel freed in exchange for Palestinian detainees. How, how is this different from that? Well, that one was about a week long. This could be six weeks. And there is a push by mediators for this to be extended. So this could lay the groundwork for a permanent ceasefire. Wow. Now, Egyptian officials, they first floated this plan a few weeks ago, and it is built on three phases. So neither side would get everything all at once. Hamas is still holding a number of Israeli soldiers that it captured on October 7th, and Israel has no immediate plans to withdraw its troops from Gaza. But there are efforts, you know, in the past that have faltered, like in January when Israel assassinated Hamas as chief negotiator. But this time, the White House is saying discussions are going well and have been described as constructive. One can only hope. Well, I know that another development is a plan that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has just revealed, which he calls, quote, the day after Hamas. What does this plan say? Right. So the Israeli prime minister put forth this plan. Now, he is backed by a hardline right-wing coalition. And this plan, you know, is short on specifics. But the main points are that Israel would continue to operate militarily in Gaza without time limits. He says this would be to prevent further attacks. He also says Israel would carve out a buffer zone inside Gaza along the border with Israel, so inside Gazan territory. And he says Gaza would be governed by, quote, local authorities with management experience. So this all leaves a lot of room for interpretation as negotiators go into these talks in right. Paris. Well, much of what you just said appears to be at odds with the Biden administration. I mean, the president has offered unwavering support to Israel throughout this war, but has also made clear that he backs a two-state solution, something that Netanyahu has publicly opposed quite explicitly. 
How has the U.S. responded to Netanyahu's plan? Well, today the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was asked to comment on Netanyahu's blueprint and have a listen to some of what he said. There should be no Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. The size of Gaza's territory should not be reduced. So we want to make sure that any plan that emerges uh, is consistent with those principles. Now, Blinken also said there are many countries in the region working together on a post-war plan for Gaza, including Gulf Arab states like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. They're going to be needed to help pay for the reconstruction of Gaza. But glaringly absent from Netanyahu's plan are the Palestinians themselves, what they want. And Gaza right now, it is in near total ruins. You know, a lot of homes and hospitals and schools have been destroyed. People are in desperate need of aid. So there's real concern about the fate of the more than 2 million people in Gaza, the spread of disease, even if the war were to end today. And the question is whether this plan or any other addresses the root cause and brings lasting peace to Israelis and Palestinians. That is NPR's Aya Batrawi. Thank you so much, Aya. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The president of El Salvador has been heavily criticized by human rights groups and pro-democracy advocates, but Nayib Bukele has become an inspiration for many Latin American politicians who admire his tough approach to crime. Last night in Maryland, Bukele got a primetime spot at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, annual gathering of U.S. conservatives, and he made a few new fans, as NPR's Ada Peralta reports. As Nayib Bukele entered a conference hall in Maryland, supporters made what has become a recurring comparison. Chance of Bukele morphed into chance of Trump. But Bukele is no Trump. He's much younger at 42. He's trim, impeccably dressed. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the president of El Salvador. And he jumped on stage, not as a 77-year-old man facing multiple criminal charges and a hotly contested election, but as a man who just won the presidency with more than 80% of the vote, a man who is in complete control of his country. Bukele presented himself as a prophet. The people of El Salvador have woken up, and so can you. Bukele came to power in 2019, and shortly thereafter, the country suspended many basic constitutional guarantees. Bukele then launched a massive assault on gangs, jailing some 70,000 people. Human rights groups accused him of gross violations, but the murder rate plummeted. His popularity skyrocketed. He joked that he had become the world's coolest dictator, and in his speech, he detailed a playbook. We didn't tolerate being told what to do. In doing so, we did the unthinkable. We transformed El Salvador from the most dangerous country in the world to the safest in the Western Hemisphere. Jorge Cuellar, who studies El Salvador at Dartmouth, says, on the surface, Bukele may not seem like the kind of leader who would make a good ally for American conservatives. In his early political career, he called himself a socialist. But Cuellar says Bukele, a lot like Trump, never really let ideology define him. Bukele is not a socialist. Um, he's an opportunist. Like Trump, Cuellar says, Bukele ran on a drain-the-swamp platform, on a promise to change a political system that Salvadorans thought was broken. So his message resonated. Because it latched on to that 
dissatisfaction, the sentiment of hopelessness, of political inefficacy. When he became president, Bukele bulldozed. He stacked the courts with loyalist judges. He defied the constitution and ran for a second term. And he made the opposition, the press, independent agencies, and human rights groups enemies of change. You know, Bukele is doing what, in some ways, the MAGA Republicans wanted Trump to do. Indeed, says Cuellar, in that speech at CPAC, Bukele presented himself as the, quote, evolution of the Trumpian formula, a president who got past the democratic guardrails to bring a quick change to his country. He makes Trump look old. He makes Trump look confused and tired. And after the speech, the attendees we spoke to were impressed. Steve Merzinski, who makes MAGA hammocks and scarves, likes that Bukele put El Salvador first. I just like that he's a guy who did what needed to be done to stop the biggest problem in his country, which was crime. And if the U.S. keeps going the way it's going, he says, it may just need a naive Bukele of its own. Ada Prota, NPR News, Mexico City. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with 90.9 WBUR this afternoon. Coming up just after the top of the hour, some of the science of IVF, including why so many embryos are frozen and how the Alabama Supreme Court ruling might affect IVF in other places. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. The rain will move out tonight, then we'll have mostly cloudy skies and temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow will start off mostly cloudy, then skies will gradually clear to become partly sunny. It'll be in the mid-30s. It should get to the upper 30s Sunday with even more sunshine. And then Monday looks sunny and around 50 degrees. Right now it's 39 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Nora and Arthur from the Oscar-nominated movie Past Lives have a loving marriage and a fulfilling creative partnership. She's a playwright. He's an author. But they are so different in so many other ways. Is this what you imagined for yourself when you left school? When I was a 12-year-old? Yeah. Is this what you pictured for yourself? Laying in bed in some tiny apartment in the East Village with some Jewish guy who writes books. 
Greta Lee stars as Nora, who left Korea as a kid and left behind her childhood sweetheart, Sung. Sung tracks her down decades later in New York, and reconnecting with him prompts all kinds of questions for Nora about the path she chose in life and how her decisions have reshaped her identity. He still lives with his parents, which is really Korean. He has all these really Korean views about everything. And... I feel so not Korean when I'm with him, but also in some way more Korean. So weird. It's a sentiment that felt so familiar to me as a Taiwanese-American woman, that feeling of living in between, between Western and Eastern, between kinship and distance. Greta Lee and I talked about how her character Nora embodied that tension in this film. In Nora's case, she's... She's Korean-Canadian, but if you look at, let's say, the language aspect of it, it was so important to accurately convey the fluidity of language. And and when you mention like, okay, feeling more Asian around certain people or less, that kind of fluctuation is something that is so real and personal to me. Um, and we wanted to bring that to the character in this story. Yeah. So in certain it was so crucial to really hone in on and be really specific in certain cases about, well, is she going to sound, how how Asian does she sound? How Korean does she sound at the beginning of a scene as opposed to the end of the scene? After, let's say, several hours of talking to his home in Korean and just being mindful of all of that, I mean, was a reflection of what this experience is that, that we're talking about of living in the in-between, experiencing that full spectrum of Western and Eastern and, you know. Oh my God, like, especially that moment when Nora's lying in bed with her husband and he mentions that she talks in her sleep in Korean. And she didn't even know that that was what was happening. Well, there's something so exposing about language, right? I mean, my language, my my Korean-ness is something that's so private. And actually, you know, I was like, surprise and kind of I tickled by uh, the response from my friends and family initially when they heard that I was taking this on this kind of reaction collectively of like oh my god but can you actually speak Korean you can speak Korean (laughs) how good how good is your Korean oh oh no and but what I feel like what that was honing in on is there is so much to um, the way we hold on to whether it's our native language or our second language and um, what that relationship is like. Um, So that scene, yeah, that scene when she's talking to Arthur about it, it is so personal. The the fact that her husband can identify that that is something that is a place that he can't go. He can't access. He can't. And he is fully cognizant of that. Did you surprise yourself that you could speak Korean so well in this movie? Were you like kind of reaccessing this deep reservoir in your own brain? Like, oh, I, I know this. I can speak so much better than people are giving me credit for. I never expected to do a movie in Korean with this much Korean, a movie in any other language other than <laughs> my primary language, which is English. And being immersed and reimmersed in my Korean and Koreanness. It unlocked a lot of different things. It it cracked mm. open for me, recognizing 
all the shifts that I'd made in my life and my career, this trajectory of what this means to have this immigrant experience. Yes, we have academic ideas of what assimilation is, but it became really personal. And it was, I think in a way, it matched maybe Nora's experience of feeling the heartbreak and the loss of identity, letting go of former selves and and just reconciling that, you know, the the choices that we make, where we live, who we're surrounded by, they have incredible, massive impacts on the full trajectory of our lives. Yes. Well, you segue beautifully into my next question. A Korean concept known as inyum comes up in this story. Explain what that is really briefly to people who have no idea what this term means. Inyan, to me, as I know it, is just about human connectedness. It's rooted in ideas of reincarnation, and it could be as slight as two people walking down the street and brushing up against each other. And it could also be as deep and vast as the connection that we would have with a parent or a spouse. Um, spanning over multiple lifetimes, even. Exactly. Can I ask you, Greta, have you ever felt Inyan before? This feeling of, I've met you before. I feel like I already know you. When, when you meet somebody for the first time. Something that springs to mind is I felt a deep Inyan with the script, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like a deep connection yeah. with the script. Uh-huh. It cut through me. I had such a profound experience in reading the gorgeous words that Celine had written. That's Celine Song, the writer and director. Yes. And it wasn't until a year later that the job came to fruition. So for me, like this idea of destiny and fate and connectedness is mm. just embedded mm. in so many aspects of this job and this process. And yes, I also feel union with them. Um, you know, maybe there was a boy in kindergarten named Jimmy. Um, Jimmy, if you're out there, I think we had we we have Inyan. <laughs> You've met Jimmy in a past life. Yes, way before kindergarten. <laughs> you know, I cried so much. Well, throughout the movie, but especially at the end. And I'm not going to give anything away, but it filled me with such hope. Mm. The end, because it was like there is such beauty in committing to one path. Yes, you lose something, you sacrifice something with each choice you make. But you also gained something, right? Yeah. I mean, there's that beautiful moment in the beginning of the movie when Nora's mother um, says, and uh, hopefully I'm not messing up this quote, that in order to gain something, sometimes you have to lose something. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I I can definitely relate to that idea of of love and, and destiny, not as sort of like these neat constructs, but just as a living and breathing entity in and of itself that evolves with us over the course of our lives. Absolutely. Greta Lee stars in the new film, Past Lives. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us, Greta. This was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. 
from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. WBUR supporters include Lauren Hollerin with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenhollerin.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Two years after it invaded Ukraine, Russia is depleted, but it shows no signs of stopping its assault. We'll check in on the status of the war. It's Friday, February 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Nikki Haley is finding support and skepticism in the small South Carolina town where she grew up, as she hopes she can pull off an upset victory against Donald Trump in tomorrow's primary. It will not look good for her. It will not look good for any candidate if you don't win your own state. Plus, Massachusetts hospitals owned by Steward Healthcare are deep in debt and in danger of closing. The situation threatens patient care. Meanwhile, Steward is up against a deadline this hour to turn over details of its finances to Governor Maura Healey. It's 5.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden's formally pursuing new sweeping sanctions against Russia. NPR's Tamara Keith says Biden addressed a bipartisan group of governors at the White House today about his decision. This marks two years since Russia invaded Ukraine and comes a week after the unexplained death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in an Arctic penal colony. Biden met yesterday with Navalny's wife and daughter and repeated there is no question that Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. I assured them his legacy will continue to live around the world, and we in the United States are going to continue to ensure that Putin pays the price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. That includes more than 500 new sanctions against Russia, targeting its financial sector, defense industrial base, and those connected to the Navalny imprisonment. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Alabama's governor says she supports efforts to protect in vitro fertilization. As Mary Scott Hodgen of member station WBHM reports, Kay Ivey's comments come a week after Alabama's Supreme Court ruled frozen embryos have the same rights as children under state law. Governor Kay Ivey said in a statement that she wants to, quote, foster a culture of life. She says that includes couples utilizing IVF. Last week, the state Supreme Court ruled that people can file wrongful death lawsuits over the destruction of frozen embryos. The decision sparked legal confusion for fertility providers, prompting at least three Alabama clinics to pause IVF treatment. Republican state lawmakers say they are working on legislation to protect IVF, 
In her statement, Ivy says she looks forward to following the issue. For NPR News, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen in Birmingham. Nikki Haley is facing a presidential primary in her home state of South Carolina tomorrow, but she's already looking beyond. NPR's Young Hoon Han reports rather Haley's campaign war chest is in focus. Haley's campaign announced a major seven-figure ad buy in a call with reporters across several key states. The campaign has continued to highlight its healthy financials going into Tuesday's Michigan primary and Super Tuesday on March 5th. Haley raised $16 million in January, her best fundraising month yet, and has had several big fundraising swings throughout California, Texas, Florida, and New York. This is the behind-the-scenes picture the Haley campaign is using to push the argument that Haley is more electable than either former President Donald Trump or President Biden. Jung Yoon Han, NPR News, Monk's Corner, South Carolina. AI chipmaker NVIDIA for the first time today was a $2 trillion company, putting it in rarefied company with only Apple and Microsoft as the world's most valuable corporations. While it took NVIDIA 24 years as a public company to see its valuation reach a trillion dollars, that second trillion took just eight months to reach. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 62 points. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. This hour, the deadline has come for Steward Healthcare to meet a deadline from the governor to share details of its finances, and there's no word if it did so. Steward has said its financial troubles jeopardize the operations of its hospitals here in Massachusetts. Governor Healy set the deadline earlier this week. She did not say what penalty Steward might face for not meeting her deadline. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is renewing her push for Congress to protect all reproductive health care. It's a reaction to a decision this week by the Alabama Supreme Court that said embryos used for IVF are children and should be protected. WBUR's Amanda Beland has more. Presley called the Alabama decision devastating. They have no business being in anyone's family business. Still, she says this decision is from what she calls the far-right extremism playbook, employed since the federal Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. First they came for abortion access, then birth control, and now IVF. And we can't allow them to dictate when, how, and whether we grow our families. Abortion rights are essentially codified in Massachusetts, but Presley believes that needs to be the case everywhere. We have to continue to push as if uh, lives depend on it, because they do. She added she's pushing for a whole government response to make it a reality. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Bright minds are gathering at MIT this weekend with the goal of harnessing artificial intelligence to make the world more accessible for people with disabilities. Teams of students will work together for a so-called hackathon that runs today through Sunday. The event is in collaboration with the Howe Innovation Center at Perkins School for the Blind in Watertown. Center Executive Director Sandy Lacey says the Internet is one space that can be tricky for people with disabilities to navigate. If you can't access information, you can't live an informed life, whether that's access to education, access to voting, access to, you know, any social interest someone might have. So those are examples of why um, accessibility with the Internet is incredibly important. Lacey hopes students who participate in the hackathon will use this experience to pursue accessibility solutions in their future careers. In sports, the Red Sox played their first preseason game today against Northeastern University. The Sox won 7-2. After a slight chance of rain to start, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight as temps dip down to the low 30s. It'll be in the mid-30s tomorrow as clouds start moving out and some sun breaks through. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos are legally children. In response, at least three fertility clinics in Alabama are pausing in vitro fertilization treatments. So how does the IVF process work? We will explain the science in a few minutes. We start this hour by marking an anniversary. Tomorrow will be two years since Russia launched launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Outwardly, the country projects confidence in the war's progress, and political repression ensures that is also the message at home. So how could one gauge Russia's mood right now? NPR's Charles Maines found a way, perhaps, in a Moscow theme park. There are the official stories told about Russia, and then there are the stories Russians tell about themselves. Amid another year of war that saw hundreds of thousands killed and wounded, an armed rebellion in Russia's military ranks, and a crackdown on dissent at home, Russian President Vladimir Putin's message to his nation, Russia is not only surviving, it's thriving. The country is changing for the better, said Putin at a conference in Moscow this week. We're becoming more self-sufficient and more sovereign, adding it was now Russia's time. A new exhibit in Moscow, called simply Russia, or Russia, celebrates the best of the Putin era at 24 years and counting. Housed on the grounds of a park once dedicated to Soviet achievements in industry and agriculture, the new exhibit features tributes to present-day successes like the Sputnik V vaccine and Russia's new fleet of nuclear-powered icebreakers. There's also a massive pavilion dedicated to Russia's regions, the world's largest country housed in a free-to-the-public wonder cabinet of Siberian robots, stuffed polar bears, and did you know trivia on local history and culture. Galina Shabelkova, a pensioner visiting from Siberia, says she likes what she sees. Our Russia has begun to develop in the right way. It's more beautiful, more accessible than ever, says Shabelkova, and that's all thanks to our president. Walking the length of the pavilion offers a vicarious trip across the country, beginning with Ukraine's occupied territories. In a mock-up of a Donetsk coal mine, 22-year-old Anna Chichua tells me the story of her region's journey from oppression under Ukraine to its fight for independence and later reunification with Russia. There's also this. A six-foot rose sculpted from shrapnel, a symbol of the region's resolve. People often ask if we're happy to be with Russia, Chichu explains. I tell them that when Vladimir Putin recognized Donetsk, everyone had goosebumps. We'd finally gained our freedom. In September of 2022, at a ceremony at the Kremlin, Putin proclaimed Donetsk and three other Ukrainian regions part of the Russian Federation forever. 
Never mind that to this day, Russian forces don't have full control over the area or that the international community condemned the annexation as illegal. At a booth for the occupied Kherson region, local Alexander Shevchenko says that after watching territory shift hands repeatedly in the first year of the war, he now sees battle lines and hearts more hardened. Many people no longer talk with friends, brothers, sisters and family who ended up on the other side, he says. But that's only because Ukrainian propaganda makes contact impossible. Shevchenko says most have adapted to life under Russian rule, with its new tax codes, laws and Russian telephone numbers. It's the latest chapter in the region's long history. Life is always about change, he tells me. Those who aren't ready for change aren't ready for life. Next, our tour reaches Belgorod, a region bordering Ukraine and one of the few regions of Russia under regular attack. Artem Chistikov, a recent university graduate from Belgorod, reminds us it is largely American rockets that have rained down on his city the past year, just as he acknowledges the devastation Russia has meted out on Ukraine. First they hit us, and then we hit them, the other way around. But there's always a response, he tells me. It's an endless cycle of revenge, and honestly, we're all tired of it. The exhibit is also a chance to swing through Chechnya, a republic renowned for its own past separatist wars and human rights abuses under its current Kremlin-backed leader, Ramzan Kadyrov. Yadiv Rizan, an official in the republic's agricultural ministry, says Chechen support for the war effort is unwavering, as is their pride in the battlefield achievements of Kadir's elite Ahmad special forces in Ukraine. People come from all over the country to train with Ahmad before heading off to Ukraine, he says. That includes former fighters from the Wagner Group. Rivzan told me most Wagner fighters joined Ahmad after Wagner was disbanded following a failed uprising by its leader Yevgeny Prigozhin against Russia's top brass last summer. Prigozhin died in a still unexplained plane crash just two months after the rebellion. We end our tour elsewhere in Moscow by talking about another mysterious death and another form of Russian power. Last weekend, police rounded up hundreds of mourners paying tribute to the late opposition leader Alexei Navalny, the circumstances of whose death last week in a remote Arctic prison remain unclear. Twenty-five-year-old Pavel Injutov says with Navalny's death, his belief in a brighter future for Russia has died as well. Who else can so clearly express the feelings of those of us who don't agree with Putin or the war, he says. We'd been talking in front of the Solovetsky Stone, a monument to victims of Soviet repression, in a small snow-covered park across from the headquarters of the old KGB. There are the official stories told about Russia, and then there are the stories Russians tell about themselves. It was late, and police looked on blankly, waiting for us to leave. Waiting so they could remove the flowers and tributes to Navalny, as they have done every night since his death, only to see them reappear the next day. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. IVF, or in vitro fertilization, is a delicate and complicated process, one that many people are trying to understand after a ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court. That ruling, that frozen embryos are considered, quote, extra uterine children under state law, prompted some fertility clinics in Alabama to pause IVF treatments. 
And even though the state attorney general's office said today it has, quote, no intention of prosecuting families or providers based on that ruling, this is not the end of the story. Joining us now to discuss the science of IVF is NPR health correspondent Maria Godoy. Hey, Maria. Hi. Okay, so can you just first briefly explain what is involved in IVF? Yeah, so each IVF cycle is a multi-step process. It involves stimulating the ovaries, retrieving eggs, and then fertilizing them outside the body. And then those resulting embryos are grown in the lab until they reach a certain stage of development. And at that point, the embryo can be transferred into a woman's uterus or it can be frozen for use later. And sometimes both things happen. One right. embryo is transferred into a uterus and extra embryos are frozen. That's right. And this court ruling in Alabama involved frozen embryos, right? It was brought by couples who had sought IVF and had frozen embryos that were destroyed in an accident at a clinic in Mobile. The court ruled that those frozen embryos are protected under Alabama's Wrongful Death of a Minor Act. So these parents can sue the clinic where these embryos were destroyed. And legal and reproductive medicine experts say this could have huge implications for how IVF is practiced in the state. Okay, and how so? Well, at least three clinics in Alabama have already said they're pausing IVF treatment in the wake of the ruling. Now, we don't know yet if this assurance from the attorney general might make them open back up. Dr. Eve Feinberg is a reproductive medicine specialist at Northwestern University in Chicago. She says one of the big concerns that this ruling treats every embryo as a person under the law, but the fact is it's quite common for embryos not to make it, and that can happen at every stage of this process. Mm -hmm. Here's Dr. Feinberg. And so if you are now calling a fertilized egg a child and you are ascribing state protection to that fertilized egg, by definition, 45% of all embryos grown in the laboratory, quote unquote, die, and the charge of wrongful death can now be applied. And who wants to assume that risk? Hmm. You know, she says the ruling raises the legal risks for IVF doctors exponentially. Here she is again. And I will tell you, as a reproductive specialist, that idea is terrifying. You know, she says as much as she loves what she does, she wouldn't feel comfortable performing IVF in Alabama, given this ruling. I get that. I mean, this ruling, it was about frozen embryos. So are there mm -hmm. ways to receive IVF treatment that don't involve embryos that are frozen? Well, yes. A patient can have the embryos transferred right away. That's known as a fresh IVF cycle. But the issue here is that frozen embryos have really revolutionized IVF and made it much more likely that people will be successful in having a healthy pregnancy. It's made it safer for women, and it's also helped lower the cost. Stimulating the ovaries and retrieving eggs is probably the most expensive and uncomfortable part of this whole process. So if you can reduce the number of times you have to do that, it makes IVF more affordable. And you know, a cycle can cost anywhere from twelve dollars to $24,000, and that's not even including the cost of medications. That's a lot of money. So what are the options for people in Alabama who have frozen embryos stored there right now? Well, in theory, they could ship them to another state. Um, it costs about $800, but the University of Alabama at Birmingham has told IVF patients that shipping companies are also pausing in the state. Those companies are also assessing their risks. Hmm. That is NPR's Maria Godoy. Thank you so much, Maria. My pleasure. Mexico City is on the brink of a huge water crisis, and it is not just due to climate change. 
This unsustainable water management accentuates the severity of the water situation in the city. So what is being done to fix it? Find out Monday on All Things Considered. You can listen on your radio, your mobile device, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for kicking off your Friday evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, how do whales make their sounds? Scientists have now painted the most complete picture of how baleen whales produce their haunting calls. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow picked up 0.2%. The S&P gained 0.03%. NASDAQ lost 0.3%. In local business news, the state's largest medical device maker says it reduced its global headcount by 8,000 people last year. Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific reported to the Securities and Exchange Commission this week it had... 122,000 employees worldwide last year. That's 8,000 fewer than it had the previous year. The company did not say how those cuts affected its Massachusetts workforce. It has about 4,100 employees in the state. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. There's a slight chance of rain tonight, and it'll be mostly cloudy overnight. Temps will be in the low 30s. Tomorrow, gradual clearing with the sun, sun breaking through as the day goes on, and highs will be in the mid-30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Many a black history lesson includes the story of James Meredith, the man who in 1962 integrated the University of Mississippi, the college campus most associated with the Old South. But that was not the end of efforts to dismantle entrenched segregation there. By 1970, black students protested what they saw as token integration and demanded racial equity. They paid a hefty price getting jailed and expelled from school. Now they're back on the Ole Miss campus in dialogue with today's students. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. Even the moniker Ole Miss derives from the term for the mistress of the plantation. And back in 1970, school pride meant waving Confederate battle flags. The climate was like the desert. 
Lenny Liggins Willis was among the fewer than 200 black students on the Oxford, Mississippi campus at the time. They felt isolated. We would associate and cling to each other because we didn't have the opportunity to really interact with the other students on campus. And so we just kind of formed our own little community. Her classmate, Kenneth Mayfield, says the message was clear that black students were considered second-class citizens. He remembers being taunted walking by the athletic dorm. We knew after passing in front of the house, you were going to get harassed, you know, with the N-word type stuff like that. And so, boom, you go a different way. The experience was disheartening for students who thought they had a shot at an education from the state's flagship university after James Meredith had broken the color barrier eight years before. So they formed a black student union to fight for racial equity. Willis was secretary of the group. We wanted our voices to be heard and we wanted to feel that we were a part of the mainstream. Another member, Donald Cole, says the group was emboldened by protests on other campuses across the country and delivered 27 demands to the chancellor on February 24, 1970. We were just asking very, very simply to be treated normally. Uh, we were just trying to better the institution. For instance, they wanted the school to hire black professors, recruit black athletes, and do away with sanctioned racist imagery. Disassociation of the university with Confederate symbols, the flag at the time, because that was just one way of individuals constantly telling me that they didn't want me here. This was really about telling these black students, know your place. This is still a white man's university. That's Ralph Eubanks with the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi. He's working to ensure current students learn about the decades-long struggle to fully integrate the campus and what that means for the future. That has been the missing piece of the civil rights movement. We as a nation never learn to work together down the road. And this university, with its civil rights history, never had that form of reconciliation. The University of Mississippi Black Students Demand, the employment of black instructors in all schools of the university. This is freshman Aminata Ba reciting the Black Student Union's demands from 54 years ago during a recent commemoration on campus. Ba considers herself a legacy of those students and wants to build on what they achieved. That work comes from addressing the difficult history and not whitewashing it, but instead saying this is what we did and this is what we're going to do and this is how we're moving forward. A key event in the struggle of 1970 was when the Black Student Union disrupted a concert on campus. Kenneth Mayfield remembers marching onto the stage, fists raised with the black power symbol. A few minutes later, the word came up to those of us who were on the stage that Howard Patrol had surrounded the building. For the first time since that night, 54 years ago, Mayfield and Cole are introduced to two members of the international group that was performing, called up with people. I am just so glad that we were able to be here tonight yeah, and yeah. laugh about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. That's uh, yeah. And I'm really glad I came and, down, and too. it could have easily been a very violent night. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce Parker and Rick Newman, both white men, were part of the cast. We stopped the song we were singing and we immediately went into What Color Is God's Skin, 
I think it really spoke to the protesters. We wanted them to know that we were standing with them, not against them. 89 protesters were arrested, along with other black students who had earlier burned a Confederate flag in the cafeteria. Eight of them, including Willis, Mayfield, and Cole, were also expelled. We probably knew that something was, uh, was due to, to us, but we, we really didn't think, you know, kicking us out. Yeah, I think. You know. I mean, we we we've seen frat boys do stuff much, uh, yeah, of <laughs> right. uh, much right. more. But those frat boys weren't trying to change the whole culture of the South either. So. Cole and Mayfield went on to graduate from the historically black Tougaloo College. Mayfield is a lawyer. Cole later got his doctorate from Mississippi and retired as an assistant provost. Lenny Liggins Willis says she was long bitter that Ole Miss denied her a degree back then. She left the state for good and ran a housing authority in Ohio. Willis only returned to campus 50 years later when the university awarded her that degree and apologized to the expelled students. The school created scholarships in their honor and invites them for dialogue with modern-day students. The impact of the 1970 protests was not in vain. That's Robert Mister, a second-generation black student at Ole Miss, who says much has changed since then and since his mother was a student here in the 90s. I really don't like how we hold Ole Miss to its old roots. A lot of people in my community tend to, you know, say, oh, Ole Miss is that racist school, Ole Miss is that, that white man's school. But, you know, I'm here to tell you in 2024 that's most definitely not the case. The institution has worked to distance itself from symbols of the Old South, banning the Confederate battle flag from sporting events, for instance. There are even campus slavery tours now that delve deeply into the history here. But Ole Miss still struggles to attract and retain black professors and students. Mississippi's population is nearly 40% African-American, the highest in the country, yet black students make up only about 11% of the student body. And the percentage of black faculty is even smaller, 6%. Freshman Edward Wilson has noticed. And I'm like, where are they? Where is this? representation and where are people who go here going to see any other representation besides the person who prepares my fries. Wilson says learning about what happened on campus has him thinking about what protest means to people his age. You're just trying to find a place in the world. It doesn't have to be some big march for, you know, things, massive things like voting rights. You know, it can be small cell stuff, just making your voice heard when, you know, feel like that you're being shut out of the conversation. That itself is, is protest to me. For Kenneth Mayfield and Donald Cole, seeing these black students asserting their place on campus today is proof they were on the right side of history back in 1970. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Oxford, Mississippi. And this story was produced by Walter Ray Watson. This is NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. You can find us live at WBUR.org and on the WBUR app. Coming up in the next half hour of All Things Considered, a preview of tomorrow's Republican South Carolina primary and a rule change in women's volleyball is serving up controversy.
WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com. And the ICA with Of Wales, an immersive extended reality video inspired by Moby Dick. On view now, ICABoston.org. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Today, President Biden formally issued more than 500 new sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine and the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. We can't walk away now. And that's what Putin is betting on. He's betting on we're going to walk away. This says Russia's war is about to enter its third year. But with the additional aid bill for Ukraine and others stalled in Congress, Biden is relying on financial tools to slow Russia's ability to restock its weapons. Israel has announced plans to build new housing in the occupied West Bank, sparking criticism from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He says this will just weaken Israel's security, not strengthen it, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Secretary Blinken was asked about the new settlement announcement while he was on a trip to Argentina, and he said he was disappointed. New settlements are counterproductive to reaching an enduring peace. Uh, they're also inconsistent with international law. With those words, he was signaling a return to longstanding U.S. policy on settlements. In 2019, under the Trump administration, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo effectively backed Israel's right to build in the West Bank by saying his department did not view the settlements as inconsistent with international law. Secretary Blinken says the Biden administration maintains a, quote, firm opposition to the expansion of Jewish settlements. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A judge in New York today formally ordered former President Donald Trump to pay a total of $454 million after losing his civil fraud case. He has 30 days to put up the money, in cash or a bond, in order to appeal the verdict. Interest is accruing at 9 percent per year, amounting to nearly $90,000 a day. The Republican presidential frontrunner is facing a combined 91 state and federal charges. Wall Street into the day in mixed territory. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Governor Maura Healey's office is suggesting Steward Healthcare complete an orderly transition out of Massachusetts. The for-profit company, which owns nine hospitals in the state, has said its financial troubles are putting its operations in jeopardy. Healy gave a deadline of 5 this afternoon for Stewart to share more details of its finances. But the governor's office says the information Stewart turned over is incomplete and insufficient. There's been no response yet from Stewart. A new class-action civil rights lawsuit claims Massachusetts state troopers have used their cell phones unlawfully to record people during drug investigations. The complaint filed today says the allegations date back to 2017. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports. According to the lawsuit, in at least 181 instances, people were charged with crimes after police secretly recorded them without a warrant. The lawsuit also says the police never told defendants they had these recordings, which is required by law. The company Motorola Solutions, which makes the app that police used, is also named in the lawsuit. 
The plaintiffs allege that the company knew its app was being used unlawfully, but failed to do anything about it. Christopher Batinzi is the lawyer representing the plaintiffs. We believe the conduct alleged constitutes egregious civil rights violations, and we look forward to our day in court. Neither the state police nor Motorola responded to requests for comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Congressman Seth Moulton is renewing his call for House Republicans to pass the foreign aid bill for Ukraine and Taiwan. He just returned from a trip to Taiwan. Moulton says the country's leaders are worried an end of American aid for Ukraine will make Taiwan more vulnerable to threats from China. One of the people watching Ukraine most closely is Xi Jinping in China. He wants to see if we're going to stand up for a fellow democracy. He wants to see if the democratic allies will stand together and prevent this despot, Putin, from succeeding. Moulton was part of a bipartisan congressional delegation that tried to assure Taiwanese leaders the U.S. is still a strong ally. It's 534. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres, on stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The rain will move out tonight, then we'll have mostly cloudy skies and temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow will start off mostly cloudy, then skies will gradually clear to become partly sunny. It'll be in the mid-30s. It'll get to the upper 30s Sunday with even more sunshine. Monday looks partly sunny, around 50 degrees. And then a little warmer Tuesday in the mid-50s with partly sunny skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Scientists have uncovered one of the secrets of the underwater world, how humpback whales sing their haunting songs. More on that in a few minutes. But first, we are going to go to South Carolina, where Nikki Haley is hoping to pull off an upset tomorrow in her home state. She's trailing former President Trump in Republican primary polls, but she's been crisscrossing the state on a bus tour the past two weeks, trying to close that gap. Here's Haley in her hometown of Bamberg earlier this month. Carolina when I can come home. NPR's Sarah McCammon traveled to Bamberg yesterday to see how people there are feeling about Haley's last pitch to South Carolina voters. Rusty and Paula's restaurant on the main drag through Bamberg is often a hub of local activity, hosting events for politicians, including hometown girl Nikki Haley. Haley's been here seven times. You know, she always found this was her home. You know what I'm saying? It was always nice to see her. Today, it's also a construction zone as the town recovers from a major tornado that tore through last month. Owner Paula Dykes says the place flooded and the roof blew off. I had my ceilings done, my roof done. Um, Now we're doing the painting. Even so, Dykes was happy to host a few residents from the area who gathered around a table in the mostly empty restaurant to talk about Haley's last push before the primary. Sharon Carter, who invited the group, 
is chairwoman of the Bamberg County Republican Party. Now we're down to two. And even at our last meeting, we had Haley and Trump signs. As chair, Carter can't officially endorse any candidate, but she has some thoughts about this weekend's matchup between the former president and South Carolina's former governor. It is astonishing to me that people are choosing Trump in her hometown because people who do know her know that she's an authentically real person. But some people here still are choosing Trump. Trump has a track record. Nikki Haley does not. Across the table from Carter is Jerome Boyce. He lives in Denmark, another small town down the road. Boyce says Haley, who's also a former United Nations ambassador, was a good governor for South Carolina during the six years she led the state. But Boyce disagrees with her on one significant thing. I didn't like the Confederate flag being moved from the statehouse. Tell me more. Why did that bother you? It's my heritage, young lady. In 2015, as governor, Haley led South Carolina through the aftermath of the racist mass shooting that left nine people dead at a historically black church in Charleston. She pushed to remove the Confederate flag from the statehouse grounds in Columbia. Across town, Randy Maxwell says he saw that moment as an example of Haley's strength in leading the state forward. That's a thing of the past, and it stood for, whether you like to hear it or not, it stood for slavery, it stood for racism, it stood for division in our country. She did the right thing. She, she didn't hesitate. He and his wife, Mary Jane Maxwell, live a few blocks from Haley's childhood home, and they're enthusiastically supporting her in the primary. Mary Jane remembers Haley as a child. She was always a beautiful little girl. I mean, always well-mannered, well-thought-of, you know, and, of course, she grown into this amazing young lady and done wonders for the state of South Carolina, I think. As we're sitting outside on a sunny afternoon, the couple's young granddaughter interrupts, and Mary Jane gently reminds her of her manners. Hi. I say, excuse me. Excuse me, can I please get your phone? Yeah. Randy and Mary Jane say their grandchildren are one of the reasons they don't want Trump as president again. He did some good things for America, but he is just such a bully and, well, he does not have any characteristics that we want any of our grandchildren to have. Mary Jane says she has supported Trump in the past, but she doesn't think she could vote for him again. Randy says he's never voted for Trump and never will. But he admits Haley is staring down a likely defeat here at home in South Carolina. It will not look good for her. It will not look good for any candidate if you don't win your home state. Trump just has so much base that they're not going to change. Facing another Trump-Biden matchup, both say they'd probably write Haley in. Stephanie Crosby-Lee grew up in Bamberg and was stopping by a local lunch spot on Thursday with her mother, who still lives nearby. She says she wishes Haley, with her high profile, could do more for the town's struggling economy. But she's glad to see Haley in the race, even though she herself is a Democrat and supports President Biden. I really appreciate her because she's a female, and she's standing up for females. Crosby Lee sees value in Haley continuing her campaign, even if she can't ultimately beat Trump. One thing I do know, she's giving him a run for his money. Haley is poised to keep raising and spending money of her own. Her campaign has announced a seven-figure ad buy ahead of Super Tuesday next month, and she's vowed to continue campaigning regardless of what happens in her home state tomorrow. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Bamberg, South Carolina. You might recognize this song. 
It's the song of a humpback whale, a type of baleen whale. All the baleen whales make extremely low frequency sounds, and it sounds like a bit like humming, like mmm, something like this. And it's really hard for me to do because I'm very little compared to a whale. <laughs> Kuhn Elements is at the University of Southern Denmark, and he and his colleagues were curious how whales make these iconic sounds, which until recently scientists knew very little about because it's quite hard to get your hands on the larynx of a whale. Many species are endangered or protected. So the only way we can work with these animals now on the physiology is if one accidentally dies if it beaches, for example. But you have to act fast when that happens. What happens then is that these whales start rotting. And they rot so incredibly fast that they're actually known to explode on the beach. In 2018, though, Elemens got his chance when a whale died in northern Denmark. A colleague called him on a Sunday night. He was on vacation. I got a phone call from him. He's like, a, a, a whale just beached. We have to get the larynx out tomorrow. <laughs> so the next morning, we uh, basically were on the coast and we're doing a dissection of a sci whale. He and his team collected two more whale larynxes over the years. They then built an apparatus in the lab with a party balloon standing in for a whale's lungs. And they used that to blow air through the larynxes. And as such, we can basically see which parts are vibrating but then also measure the vibration with different techniques. They also built a computer model of one of the larynxes to study how a living whale might use its muscles to manipulate its calls. And the scientists found that baleen whales use airflow to vibrate tissue and produce sound, very similar to how we humans do it. What's very different is the location and the structures that make the sound in the baleen whales. And that's completely novel structure that, as far as we know now, no other animal has. The details are in the journal Nature. And whereas singers like Mariah Carey can produce a huge range of pitches with their voices, this study found that whales cannot. Which is a problem because the sounds of human machinery and boats happen to rumble around the same frequency as these whales. Elements suggests maybe humans could be a little more considerate. We can start to plan this and say we only make noises in these areas when the animals are not there. Allowing the whales a chance to carry on with their songs. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Tomorrow, South Carolina will hold its Republican presidential nominating contest, pitting the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, against the former president, Donald Trump. NPR political correspondent Daniel Kurtzleben is on the campaign trail with Trump in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and she joins us now. Hey, Danielle. Elsa. I hear that you are at a Trump rally right now as we speak, so let's start with Trump. What is the closing message that Trump is sending right now? Right, yeah, well, he is, as per usual, on the attack, but he really has been, if it's possible, even more so than usual here. Uh, in other speeches, we've seen him attacking Nikki Haley quite hard for having said, for example, that she wants to raise the Social Security retirement age, which is a big deal here in South Carolina because there are just a lot of retirees here. Yeah. There have been some other attacks, personal ones, on her husband, who's serving overseas. And also in recent days, Trump put out an attack ad as well, which might surprise you, considering that he's well ahead in polls. According to 538, he is ahead by around 30 points. Mm. And he has a lot of support. This rally has about 4,100 people, is what Secret Service told me. But 
he really seems to be trying to put an exclamation point on his candidacy to be able to say that his victory here was decisive. Well, what about Haley? I mean, if she's so far behind, what is her message at this point? Yeah, I mean, to my view, there are three real strands in her message right now. One, she's pushing the age message hard, saying that Trump and Biden are both too old. She really lumps them together. She also has a line calling Congress the most privileged nursing home in the country. And that, in her some speech, gets some real laughs from her crowd. Her second, the second part of her message is that Trump equals chaos, that the world right now is messy, dangerous, and that when Trump does things like making those NATO comments he recently did, that he's making the world more chaotic, and therefore that he's just not the right guy for the job right now. And the third is electability. She says that the numbers aren't there for MAGA. Uh, this, is, this is relatively new from what I've heard in her speeches. She was arguing last night that MAGA just can't grow much bigger, that it wants to exclude people like her. She says that she has the bigger tent. Now, whether that's true is arguable. I mean, on the one hand, I talk to a lot of Trump voters. A lot don't like her, wouldn't want to vote for her. On the other hand, when you go to her rallies, it is pretty easy to find independence. She, she does have some broad ideological appeal. Okay, so it sounds like there is this divide in the Republican Party between the Trump wing and, I guess, a more establishment Haley wing. If Haley is not the nominee, I mean, would her voters vote for Trump, you think? Listen, a lot would. I mean, partisan alignment in this country is so strong. It's hard to overstate how strong it is. So Republicans just tend to vote for Republicans, whether it's Trump or Haley. But when I've asked her voters here whether they would vote for Trump, I've gotten a mix of responses. Some say, yeah, Trump's okay. I just like Haley better, but of course I'd vote for him. But some say they either wouldn't vote for Trump or they don't like, at the very least, the idea of a Trump-Biden rematch. They don't love Trump. Uh, one voter I talked to is Nick Cicero. He's, in fact, a Haley supporter from Pittsburgh, but they vote pretty soon. He's planning to vote there in their primary for Haley. He came out to see her in Myrtle Beach last night. Here's what he said. Our friends are moderate, and they don't want either one of the two of them. And, and what's going to happen is if there's not a good third choice, they're not going to vote. So that is very much Haley's argument as well. So we'll see what happens if Trump is the nominee, which looks very likely right now. But for Haley's part, she says she is moving on no matter what happens in South Carolina, that she'll be heading to Michigan for its primary and then on to Super Tuesday. That is NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben. Thank you so much, Danielle. Of course, Elsa. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tomorrow, Nikki Haley will try to defy the polls, as we just heard, and win the South Carolina Republican presidential primary. Tomorrow night at 7, listen here on WBUR for live special coverage of the results. Coming up in the next half hour, big crowds, international press, and a boost to the Phoenix area economy. That's L.A. Dodgers phenom Shohei Atani's effect at spring training in Arizona. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Join us at City Space Wednesday, March 6th, a few days before the Oscars, for a conversation with New Yorker writer Michael Schulman about his book chronicling the last century of scandals, drama, and secrets from Hollywood's biggest night. Tickets at WBUR.org events. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight as temperatures dip down to the low 30s. Mid-30s tomorrow as clouds start moving out and some sun breaks through. Sunday should bring lots of sun and temperatures in the upper 30s. Monday looks partly sunny and 
warmer. Temperatures should get up to about 50, then mid-50s with partly sunny skies on Tuesday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live's Flamenco Festival in Boston, March 2nd through 13th. Experience the passion, power, and beauty. Tickets at globalartslive.org. WBUR and Olin College both share common values centered on education. Gilda Barabino, president of Olin College, a WBUR business partner. WBUR fosters connection and understanding through its journalism. Those same values are rooted in Olin's approach to STEM learning. We are both dedicated to transforming the world around us, all of which makes our support for WBUR a natural fit for now and for the future. To learn more, email partnerships at WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Women's volleyball will have a new set of rules for the 2024 season. This week, the NCAA implemented a series of rule changes, and one in particular is causing quite the stir. One touch or two? That is the question. Well, let's bring in Emily Eman, a volleyball analyst for the Big Ten Network and ESPN, also a former player. Hey there, Emily. Hey, how's it going? Excited to get into this a little bit. Me too. And I want to, okay, so just help me understand this. In the past, players have only been able to touch the ball once before passing to a two-mate, right? Okay, explain what's changing. Yes, so that is the rule that they have now since gotten rid of. So that contact normally referred to as a double contact, which normally happens when someone is setting the ball, meaning they're taking the ball over their head with two hands and pushing it out to another teammate. Historically, if that ball had too much spin on it, like your hands weren't pushing it as one, maybe you had one hand moving um, in a different way and the other hand going, the ball would have a little bit of spin on it, in Mm -hmm. which case that would be rule default. It was called a double contact and the other side would get the point. So if you're setting the ball to a teammate and maybe it comes off a little bit ugly, has a little bit of spin on it, that's okay as long as the ball stays on your side of the net. Mm. I'm dredging up memories from my volleyball glory days, which is uh, <laughs> high school gym class from <laughs> circa 1990. I mean, I don't remember anything about the rules, but this is the one thing I remember is you could only touch it once. This was set in stone. Why change it? Yes, I, I think one of the biggest reasons was to provide a little bit more consistency throughout the game. And then it promotes continuation of play, which obviously is more entertaining for players and fans. So you would rather watch them play than not play. Absolutely. Exactly. Let the girls play. <laughs> Let the girls play. But I mentioned this is causing a huge stir. What has been the reaction among players, among coaches? It's been really interesting to see because people seem really split about this. Even some coaches that were former setters said, yes, this is a great rule. You know, it's not going to change the game. It's not going to change the art or the way that setters set. There's also some coaches and, of course, players and fans that feel like it takes away the art of setting. And it's really, really difficult to set the ball as clean as possible, have no spin. And they learn that from a really young age. So some feel like this might be a way that's taking away the grace and beauty that is setting. Am I right in thinking this rule change will only apply to the women's game? Why? It's an interesting point because it's actually been loosened up in the men's game. They've already not necessarily gotten rid of it, but they've been really loose on the calls compared to the women's game um, over the last few years, especially. Mm. 
last thing, as I was reading in to talk to you, I um, I noticed a record that fell. Women's volleyball breaking a sports attendance record. This was last season. Yes. More than 92,000 fans at a game. That's a lot of fans. And I wonder if you would just situate this moment in terms of excitement around the game and, and whether it feels like maybe we're on the cusp of a, of a different era for the sport. It feels like we're absolutely on the cusp of a different era for volleyball and really women's sports in general. I mean, to pack 92,000 fans in a football stadium to watch a volleyball match is incredible. Every single season, we've seen viewership records get shattered. We've seen attendance records get shattered. And more people want in on it. This sport is exploding. All right. I'm excited. Here's to two touches. (laughs) Here's to some great (laughs) volleyball coming up. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. That's Emily Eamon, volleyball analyst for the Big Ten Network and ESPN. One of the country's largest private hospital operators says its facilities in Massachusetts are in financial jeopardy. As Deborah Becker from member station WBUR reports, the company's finances are entangled with those of another major business, and that could cause problems for hospitals around the country. Massachusetts officials started monitoring Stewart Hospitals daily after the company said its financial losses are jeopardizing operations. Stewart's nine Massachusetts hospitals employ about 16,000 people and serve hundreds of thousands of mostly vulnerable patients. Many Stewart facilities are in areas where there are few other hospital options. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is threatening to prevent the hospitals from admitting new patients if they don't ensure safety. I am frustrated with where we are right now uh, as a state and what Stewart has done. Stewart blames much of its losses on low reimbursement rates for government-insured patients because about 70 percent of its patients are covered by Medicaid. Neighboring hospitals say they're already strained, and if Stewart fails, they cannot absorb its patients. Tim Foley is with the union representing almost a third of Stewart's Massachusetts workers. We're working with our members, the governor and the secretary and everyone in between to make sure that there's a plan in place to ensure that care can continue in these important communities and that we maintain these critical health care jobs. Although Stewart began in Massachusetts, it's now based in Dallas and owns dozens of hospitals in eight states. It's not clear how the company's finances became so strained. Because Stewart is a private business, there is little public information about its finances. Several lawsuits allege that Stewart hasn't paid many of its bills over the past few years. Harvard researcher Zuri Song says some of the company's problems stem from a common private equity strategy. Stewart sold its hospital real estate to get capital and provide additional returns to investors. Then, Stewart agreed to pay rent to continue running those same hospitals. This is a strategy of generating additional returns, but also increasing the risk because now the acquired entity faces even more financial pressures given the new rent obligations it did not have before. Stewart's landlord is Alabama-based Medical Properties Trust, or MPT, one of the largest hospital landlords in the nation. Cornell University professor Rosemary Batt says the MPT cash allowed Stewart to expand quickly. Once they made this deal with the Massachusetts hospitals, they went on a buying spree and ended up with 33 hospitals across the country doing the exact same thing, buying hospitals, selling the property to Medical Properties Trust, loading them with debt. So this is like a house of cards. 
Stewart is now MPT's largest tenant, so the Massachusetts financial problems could have a domino effect on hundreds of other hospitals that also rent their real estate from MPT. This week, MPT said it wants to reduce its exposure to Stewart, and it has said that Stewart owes it $50 million in back rent. Rob Simone, an analyst at the Connecticut research firm Hedgeye, started advising investors against MPT about two years ago, arguing that Stewart was almost insolvent. The only reason why Stewart is failing right now, in my view, and the math kind of bears it out, is that MPT cannot afford to loan any more money to Stewart. MPT didn't respond to requests for comment. Stewart now says it hopes to make an orderly departure from Massachusetts. Healthcare experts say Stewart's challenges may result in tougher regulations on for-profit healthcare across the country. For NPR News, I'm Deborah Becker in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options. At Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. From Subaru, who along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering at City Space on Monday, March 4th, for a conversation with Maria Inojosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It'll get down to the low 30s tonight with mostly cloudy skies. Then after a mostly cloudy start tomorrow, which we should see some sun by afternoon and highs in the mid-30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden announces sanctions on more than 500 entities connected to Russia's war machine. But as the war in Ukraine enters its third year, experts question the effect of sanctions. It has had a huge impact on its economy, everyday life for people, but probably not to the extent that many thought it would. It's February 23rd. This is All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we'll bring you the story of a young social media influencer in Gaza who built a big fall following posting feel-good videos during years of hardship. And there's protest against a planned breeding facility in Georgia that would house many thousands of monkeys to be used for research. Marketplace has all the day's business news at 6.30. It's 6.01, news headlines are first.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has released what he calls a plan for the day after Hamas. It includes a number of steps, including getting rid of UNRWA, the UN agency that handles aid to Palestinians. More from NPR's Deparvaz. The Israeli government has made a series of allegations against UNRWA, notably that 12 of its staff members were involved in the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. UNRWA chief Philippe Lazzarini, who says that Israel hasn't shared any proof of these accusations, on Thursday posted a letter to Dennis Francis, president of the UN General Assembly, on X, formerly known as Twitter. He listed the ways he says Israel has tried to obstruct his agency's mandate, which is to provide humanitarian aid to Palestinians. Lazzarini asked that the General Assembly continue to sustain and support UNRWA. When Netanyahu released his plan for a post-conflict Gaza on Friday, he called for the closure of UNRWA and said it should be replaced with other international aid agencies. Deep Harbaz, NPR News, Tel Aviv. After a six-week trial and a week of deliberations, a Manhattan jury has found three top executives of the National Rifle Association liable on charges of corruption and misspending millions of dollars. Longtime NRA leader Wayne LaPierre, a key architect in the nonprofit's hardline gun rights agenda, who stepped down as CEO last month, was central to New York State's case. Jurors concluded he'd caused roughly $5.4 million worth of harm to the nonprofit group's finances, though they also found LaPierre had already repaid roughly $2 million. LaPierre's legal team says they plan to appeal. An Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law has major implications for how in vitro fertilization, commonly known as IVF, is performed. Morph Memphis, Maria Godoy. Each cycle of IVF is a multi-step process. It involves stimulating the ovaries, retrieving and fertilizing eggs, and then growing the resulting embryo to the blastocyte stage of development before transferring it into a woman's uterus. Dr. E. Feinberg of Northwestern University says only about 55% of embryos make it to the blastocyte stage under the best circumstances. She questions whether IVF providers in Alabama could now be charged for wrongful death for embryos lost during this process. And I will tell you as a reproductive specialist, that idea is terrifying. Who wants to assume that risk? At least three clinics in Alabama have said they are pausing IVF treatments. Lawmakers, including the governor, have said they favor new legislation that would allow IVF to continue in the state. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Several policymakers with the interest rate setting Federal Reserve are saying they're worried about cutting interest rates too soon or by too much. That comes in the wake of recent data showing inflation remaining unexpectedly high as the new year gets on, got underway. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 62 points. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Governor Healy's office says Steward Healthcare did not properly meet the 5 p.m. deadline set to provide more information on its troubled finances. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey explains. Healy administration officials said this evening that Stewart has not provided the financial information they requested. They said it's now time for Stewart to complete an orderly transition out of Massachusetts. And the administration is calling on Stewart to ensure safe staffing and supply levels at its hospitals. Stewart officials are insisting that they are cooperating with public officials. Stewart runs nine hospitals in Massachusetts. The wife of the former morgue manager at Harvard Medical School will plead guilty to transporting stolen human body parts sourced from donors. 
Prosecutors say Denise Lodge mailed body parts her husband Cedric had stolen from Harvard. They say she sent them to buyers across the country and received more than $37,000. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. Attorney Hope LeFaber says Denise Lodge participated in a plan devised by her husband and is pleading guilty to put the case behind her. Still, LeFaber says the case involves some thorny legal questions, like whether human remains are considered goods under federal law. I'm not by any means saying that what the defendants did here was right, but this is more of a moral and ethical dilemma here than a criminal case. There is no federal law against buying or selling human remains. A hearing date for Denise Lodge has not yet been set. Cedric Lodge and the remaining defendants are scheduled to go to trial in August. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Early voting for the upcoming primary in Massachusetts begins tomorrow. It's also the last day to register to vote ahead of the March 5th contest. Primary ballots will include nominees for president and state party positions. People who are unenrolled are allowed to vote in any party's primary. Well, if you owe a fee to Worcester Public Library for a lost or damaged book, you can bring in a photo of your cat or a drawing of a cat next month to have the fee forgiven. It's part of a first-ever month-long celebration at the library called March Meowness. The library's executive director, Jason Homer, says he's feline good about the new programming. We librarians love our cats, and so we really thought, let's lean in and find a new way to bring people in. So ultimately, March Meowness is really about forgiving those lost item fees. In addition to fee forgiveness, the library's calendar is littered with other cat-themed activities. There will be a cat-eye makeup tutorial for humans. There will also be a lecture from a certified cat behaviorist and an event to de-stress with cats from the Worcester Animal Rescue League. There's a slight chance of rain tonight, then it will be cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the low 30s. Tomorrow, gradual clearing throughout the day, highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives, and the listeners who support this NPR station. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Tomorrow, South Carolina will hold its Republican presidential nominating contest, pitting the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, against the former president, Donald Trump. NPR political correspondent Daniel Kurtzleben is on the campaign trail with Trump in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and she joins us now. Hey, Danielle. Hey, Elsa. I hear that you are at a Trump rally right now as we speak, so let's start with Trump. What is the closing message that Trump is sending right now? Right, yeah, well, he is, as per usual, on the attack, but he really has been, if it's possible, even more so than usual here. Uh, In other speeches, we've seen him attacking Nikki Haley quite hard for having said, for example, that she wants to raise the Social Security retirement age, which is a big deal here in South Carolina because there are just a lot of retirees here. There have been some other attacks, personal ones, on her husband who's serving overseas. And also in recent days, Trump put out an attack ad as well, which might surprise you, considering that he's well ahead in polls. According to 538, he is ahead by around 30 points. Mm. And he has a lot of support. This rally has about 4,100 people, is what Secret Service told me. But 
he really seems to be trying to put an exclamation point on his candidacy to be able to say that his victory here was decisive. Well, what about Haley? I mean, if she's so far behind, what is her message at this point? Yeah, I mean, to my view, there are three real strands in her message right now. One, she's pushing the age message hard, saying that Trump and Biden are both too old. She really wants them together. She also has a line calling Congress the most privileged nursing home in the country. And that, in her stump speech, gets some real laughs from her crowd. <laughs> her second, the second part of her message is that Trump equals chaos, that the world right now is messy, dangerous, and that when Trump does things like making those NATO comments he recently did, that he's making the world more chaotic, and therefore that he's just not the right guy for the job right now. And the third is electability. She says that the numbers aren't there for MAGA. Uh, this, is, this is relatively new from what I've heard in her speeches. She was arguing last night that MAGA just can't grow much bigger, that it wants to exclude people like her. She says that she has the bigger tent. Now, whether that's true is arguable. I mean, on the one hand, I talk to a lot of Trump voters. A lot don't like her, wouldn't want to vote for her. On the other hand, when you go to her rallies, it is pretty easy to find independence. She, she does have some broad ideological appeal. Okay, so it sounds like there is this divide in the Republican Party between the Trump wing and, I guess, a more establishment Haley wing. If Haley is not the nominee, I mean, would her voters vote for Trump, you think? Listen, a lot would. I mean, partisan alignment in this country is so strong. It's hard to overstate how strong it is. So Republicans just tend to vote for Republicans, whether it's Trump or Haley. But when I've asked her voters here whether they would vote for Trump, I've gotten a mix of responses. Some say, yeah, Trump's okay. I just like Haley better, but of course I'd vote for him. But some say they either wouldn't vote for Trump or they don't like, at the very least, the idea of a Trump-Biden rematch. Now, one voter I talked to was Nick Cicero. He's, in fact, a Haley supporter from Pittsburgh, but they vote pretty soon. He's planning to vote there in their primary for Haley. He came out to see her in Myrtle Beach last night. Here's what he said. Our friends are moderate, and they don't want either one of the two of them. And, and what's going to happen is if there's not a good third choice, they're not going to vote. So that is very much Haley's argument as well. So we'll see what happens if Trump is the nominee, which looks very likely right now. But for Haley's part, she says she is moving on no matter what happens in South Carolina, that she'll be heading to Michigan for its primary and then on to Super Tuesday. That is NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben. Thank you so much, Danielle. Of course, Elsa. President Biden announced today the U.S. is imposing sanctions on more than 500 targets connected to Russia's war machine and the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The move comes just before the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, Western nations have imposed thousands of sanctions on Russia over the past two years to try to hobble its economy and slow its military. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam explores their impact. The sanctions slapped on Russia by a coalition of Western nations, including the U.S., the rest of the G7, and Australia, were considered unprecedented in terms of speed and scale. They targeted banks, companies, individuals, and froze hundreds of billions of dollars of central bank assets. Despite that, Russia's economy is still standing and its military-industrial complex still churning out weapons for the war in Ukraine. But it doesn't mean that there's not been significant disruption. Justine Walker is head of global sanctions at the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. She says Russia is losing billions of dollars because of the sanctions. 
you know, it has had a huge impact on how Russia functions, its economy, everyday life for people, but probably not to the extent that, you know, many thought it would. Which is surprising, considering the Western coalition targeted Russia's biggest moneymaker, oil. The EU and the U.S. banned imports of crude, but it tempered that by allowing other nations to continue to buy it for less than $60 a barrel, enough to keep Russian oil flowing but not make profits. Janusz Kluga is an economist and Russia expert at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. He says it would have been a mistake taking Russian oil off the market. The price of oil would get so expensive because Russia is a big player there that it would have an effect on our own economies and would probably create some sort of uh, global economic crisis. The Biden administration says the Kremlin has lost 40 percent of its oil revenue. It would be more, but Moscow found ways around it, says Kimberly Donovan, director of the Atlantic Council's Economic Statecraft Initiative, which charts the impact of sanctions. Part of that is Russia's ability to circumvent the price cap by using what's called the shadow fleet, using these really old vessels to move their oil through different markets and as well as hide the origin of the oil. Russia has had help in keeping its economy afloat. China and India became Russia's biggest oil customers, albeit paying rock-bottom prices. Other nations helped it evade sanctions and ensure consumer goods and critical technology, such as semiconductors, keep flowing into Russia. Edward Fishman led the State Department's sanction policy after Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. There are countries like China and Turkey and the UAE that are importing these chips from the United States, and then they're selling them onward to Russia. You know, even last year, Russia imported more than a billion dollars worth of advanced chips from United States and Europe. Those semiconductor chips and other technology and equipment are keeping Russia's military industry alive. Kluga says this leads to a sense that the country is flourishing despite the Western sanctions. Russia's government is spending huge amounts of budgetary funds on the war right now, and this leads to a lot of economic activity and also leads to rising wages in Russia. So it's not surprising then that, for example, Moscow would give you the impression of a, of a booming city right now. Edward Fishman, now with Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, says in order for the sanctions to be credible, the U.S. needs to better enforce them. The authority is in place, the threat is in place, but we haven't really seen them use it against different banks and companies. I think we could in the coming weeks and months. The impact of sanctions are rarely immediate. Successes can seem ad hoc, such as a couple dozen Russian oil tankers sitting idle, falling natural gas prices, Russian airplanes grounded for lack of new parts, banks closing accounts of Russian customers. All signs of an ailing economy, says the Atlantic Council's Donovan. I think they're in survival mode and they're able to you know, generate revenue through all these alternative means that they've come up with. But in the long run, the outlook is pretty grim. Though like an end to the war itself, that outlook for Russia may not come quickly. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. Spring training baseball games start up this week in Arizona. They are a welcome sign of warm weather on the way, and they are an important boost to the local economy, especially now that the new star of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Shohei Otani, has arrived. Matthew Casey of KJZZ reports from Phoenix. 
Fans in blue line a path between the clubhouse and the main practice field at Camelback Ranch, where the Dodgers play their spring training games. Their love greets members of the Dodgers as they step out into the warm February sun. Newly signed ace pitcher Yoshinobu Yamamoto draws a roar as he sprints by. Yamamoto helped Japan win the World Baseball Classic last year. He joins Shohei Otani, who the Dodgers signed last year for $700 million. The pair are drawing a lot of interest at spring training, says Camelback Ranch president Matt Slatis. We actually had to build out a satellite press box on the exterior of the facility. Right now we've got about 100 media in town every single day. In previous seasons, Otani trained crosstown with the LA Angels, the team he left. That he stayed in Metro Phoenix is a win for Arizona. A local study says the Cactus League added nearly $419 million to the state's gross domestic product last year. I think that when you change teams, it's almost like a rebirth. And we talk about spring training every year as Hope Springs Eternal. Otani only takes batting practice today. Recovering from major elbow surgery, the hitting and pitching prodigy is not expected on the mound this year. Members of the Japanese media watch from the first base side of home plate. Otani swings and disaster threatens. Shutters click as Otani reacts to having fouled a pitch off of his body. The unique energy around him reminds top Cactus League officials of the flock of reporters and fans drawn years ago by Japan's Ichiro Suzuki, also an MVP who retired from the Seattle Mariners in 2019. Otani continues batting practice in a way that simulates at-bats in a game. On his third and final time up, Otani connects. The ball flies over the fence for a home run, ending Otani's first live batting practice session this spring. For NPR News, I'm Matthew Casey in Phoenix. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Up next, the story of a young social media influencer in Gaza known for posting feel-good videos. His darkest hour during the war came during an unusual moment of joy in Israel. On Wall Street today, the Dow gained 0.2 percent. The S&P ticked up 0.03 percent. NASDAQ dropped 0.3 percent. In local business news, Beacon Capital has filed plans for a 10-story building in the Flynn Marine Park in Boston's seaport. It hasn't announced any tenants for the space. Beacon Capital already has a similar building under construction next door as part of what is dubbed the South Boston Innovation Campus. WBUR supporters include Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, presenting new and classic films since 1933, with two new state-of-the-art theaters opening soon. Learn more at Coolidge.org. The T's Red Line will be closed for tunnel work between Harvard and Broadway stations this weekend. Free shuttle buses will get riders around the closure. The commuter rail will also be free this weekend between Porter Square and North Station. The Red Line closure comes as a large section of the Green Line remains closed through March 8th. We'll have cloudy skies tonight and temps in the low 30s. Skies will gradually clear tomorrow to become partly sunny. It'll be in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Feldman Geospatial, presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. 
and Bentley University's executive education programs. Elevate your career with short programs in AI, leadership, and sustainability. Upskill for today's marketplace. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Gaza, young social media activists have attracted huge audiences posting images of what it is like to live under war. One of those Instagram personalities spent years building his following with feel-good videos about life in Gaza until his darkest hour came at a moment of celebration in Israel. NPR's Daniel Estrin and our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, bring us his story, and we'll note it contains graphic descriptions of casualties. Gaza's Mr. Congeniality is a guy who goes by the nickname Casanova. He is 30-year-old Ibrahim Hassouna. I have followed him on Instagram for years, and I recognized him at a cafe a few years ago on a reporting trip to Gaza. At the time, he worked with restaurants and businesses promoting their brands. His videos were all smiles and laughter. He told me he wanted his videos to help people overcome the difficulties of life in Gaza. Like this Instagram video, you see him riding in the passenger's seat with the sunroof open, holding a bouquet of flowers, and blasting a song. The next video he posted was him on the couch at home saying, I clean the bathroom and do the dishes. And in the background, his mom goes, Liar. <laughs> Those two videos were from October 6th, 2023. The next day, Hamas attacked Israel. Then Israel attacked Gaza. And Casanova's world was forever changed. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, met him last week. Casanova says, I tend to spread positive energy, but when the war started, there was no positive energy. He, his mom and dad, his brother, his sister-in-law, and his two twin nieces fled Gaza City and fled again and again as Israeli warplanes dropped leaflets instructing Palestinians to evacuate farther and farther south for their own safety. He still tried to cheer up his family and his followers on Instagram. He posted this video making a falafel sandwich with his little nieces Suzanne and Sidra. They didn't have any toys, but they'd play together with a pot lid and an empty jar. In this video, he puts his arm around his mom on a walk to the market in the city of Rafah. He says, we're here for a change of atmosphere. They buy two cauliflowers in the market and smile as they hitch a ride on a horse-drawn cart back to where they're sheltering. But all that was the Instagram version of the day. Off camera? He says it was hard to enjoy the cauliflower meal. 
the wartime price of two cauliflowers was as much as what an entire meal used to cost. His mom said she didn't feel like going out to the market anymore. Then last weekend, his mom bought four chickens, but he went to sleep at a friend's house, so she promised to wait for him for their first chicken meal in months. Past midnight, there were massive Israeli strikes in Rafah. Our producer documented them. And Casanova rushed back to where his family was sleeping. He says he found the world turned upside down. The home had been hit. The details he gave us are graphic. He went through body bags. One body was without a head, but he recognized his dad's finger. He looked in the second bag and saw one side of his mother's face, the side he would see sleeping near her every night where they were sheltering. Another bag had pieces of his brother. He spent hours collecting the remains of his family. Little Sidra, he identified from the earring in one ear. Little Suzanne, he identified by the small purse she always slept with. The Israeli strikes that had killed his family were part of an Israeli special forces operation. Two Israeli hostages, 61 and 70 years old, captured by Hamas on October 7th, were freed. The military says it unleashed massive airstrikes as a diversion to provide the special ops forces with cover. The operation was celebrated in Israel as a rare win, a ray of light with so many other hostages still held in Gaza. Casanova considers the Israeli perspective. He says, you wanted to retrieve two elderly prisoners. It's their right. Aren't they humans? They're humans. And a child is also a human. Just as you want to recognize the rights of the human whose life you want to save, you destroyed the lives of many people who had nothing to do with the whole war. Casanova considers the big picture, the attack from Gaza on Israel October 7th and Israel's response, and says on both sides, there were many things that could have been handled more appropriately. His voice quivers. He says, now I'm by myself. There's no one. I'm speaking to you from a cemetery. I can't even smell my mother's smell, hear my father's voice, check up on my brother, play with the younger ones. A nightmare you can wake up from, but this you can't wake up from. Why should I live my life without a family? Our producer Anas Baba asks him, you used to share the beauty in besieged Gaza. Does the concept of beauty still exist for you? Casanova says, the darkness will be in my heart, not on the outside. I'll continue to spread happiness, goodness, and hope.
He says it's something his mother taught him. He has the phrase, my mom, tattooed in Arabic on his wrist. A few days ago, Casanova posted this video of him distributing water to displaced children in Gaza. The caption on Instagram said, honoring the soul of my family. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, with reporting from Anas Baba in Rafah, Gaza. This is NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. The National Rifle Association and its longtime leader, Wayne LaPierre, have been found liable in a lawsuit focused on the organization's lavish spending. Stay with WBUR and NPR for more on this developing story. It'll get down to the low 30s tonight with mostly cloudy skies. After a cloudy start tomorrow, we should see sun by afternoon and highs in the mid-30s. Then sunshine on Sunday in the upper 30s. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. 